Good afternoon and welcome to Adelaide Writers Week. I'm Tully Lavie, a writer and critic from Melbourne. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge how wonderful it is to be here amongst these hordes of people in this glorious setting. And given that reference to the glorious setting, we acknowledge the Gorna people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Sovereignty has never been ceded. For those of you who have been at several of these sessions, apologies for what needs to be mentioned. Thank you for attending Adelaide Writers Week. And whilst it's great to see you here, we need to ensure everyone is physically distanced. This is crucial as it is a key condition of our COVID management plan approved by South Australian Health. So before we start, especially for those standing, please move apart and ensure you maintain social distance. Oh, if only I didn't have to hear that word or that phrase again. <laughs> Thank you and hopefully we can get started in a moment. And I'll ask you to also support our writers, Keridwen here, by purchasing books at the book tent. Um, Life After Truth will be available from the sales counter and there'll be a sale a signing at the end of the session. Thank you and can I please remind you that when you're moving around, oh no sorry that was the end of the session. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. Um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce writer Keridwen Dovey. Keridwen grew up between South Africa where she was born and Australia. Her first novel Bloodkin a thrilling dissection of power and complicity emerged in 2007 and was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Award and selected for the US National Book Foundation's prestigious five under 35 honors list. Only The Animals, Keridwin's next book and much loved, a collection of short stories each narrated by the souls of various animals won numerous awards. The New York Times Book Review deemed the stories to be strange and richly imagined, haunting and atmospheric, a window onto the human-animal struggle to balance entitlement and obligation. Keridwen's next novel, The Atmospheric in the Garden of Fugitives, unsettles layers of national history alongside the personal history of its two protagonists as a kind of mimicry of the archaeologists who people it. It is intense and intoxicating. In the same year, Keridwen's On J.M. Katsia, Writers on Writers, was published. Poet and critic Felicity Plunkett wrote in response, it is a bright gem, curiously, beautifully. It comes like Wolfe's essay to limb ideas of women and fiction or mothers reading and writing in revealing ways. This was followed by Inner Worlds, Outer Spaces, The Working Lives of Others, a collection of profiles of people, all of whom share a distinct passion for their work. Keridwen has published essays and articles in amongst other places, The Monthly, NewYorker.com and Wired. And now we have Life After Truth, a tale of friendship and betrayal of contemporary America, suffused with nostalgia and haunted by a spectre of fading youth, 
set in the excessively romantic grounds of Harvard University, where Keridwen studied as an undergraduate. Please welcome Keridwen Dovey. <laughs> Keridwen, it all starts with a particular book. Can you tell us about the book that is colloquially referred to as the Red Book? Yeah, so the Red Book is a compilation that um, every five years, once you've graduated from Harvard and you're um, coming back for your reunion, they ask you to write an entry for what's called the Red Book, and it comes in a maroon cover, and it's about this thick. And it's become a sort of tradition that uh, you don't just write a straight report on your life, um, although you can do that, but you can interpret uh, the task in any way you want. So people will write sort of dirty limericks or they'll write a stream of consciousness kind of uh, take on their current life or they'll write a funny letter to their parents. Or And so as a, I'm a social anthropologist by training and so it's just like catnip to me. <laughs> Every five years you get to peek into your peers' inner lives or the lives that they are presenting to you anyway. Um, and you also get to see how they stick together and the communal tone of the book. And it's a way of sort of tracking ageing and a time of life in a way that, you know, we don't often pause at those junctures and look around us and have to put down on the page what is it to be five years out of uni, ten years out of uni, 25 years out of uni. And so when I was a, a student, um, I worked at the Red Book office and so one of my jobs was to put the entries together. And I did draw on that in the novel because one of the characters has that same job. And one of my jobs was to actually um, spell check the entries because they didn't want to let Team Harvard down and have <laughs> a bunch of spelling mistakes, you know, all these supposedly bright sparks. And I also had to check them for accuracy. Um, and uh, make sure there was nothing defamatory in them and that old sort of animosities between roommates weren't brought back out on the page and you, there was a surprising amount of that. So Jomo, who is one of your characters <coughs> who narrate the novel, um, or one of the characters you have a close focus on, I should say, is that editor, or he's on the editing committee like you were, and he's finds it all very illuminating in terms of how people change, how the tone of what they write changes depending on where they are in life. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, I, um, I was trying to think about, you know, what, how would I describe this novel? And I suppose it's a bit of a midlife crisis novel. Um, I've just turned 40. I know I'm a baby. I know 40 is very young. But there's a reason why midlife crises happen at this point, um, I'm discovering. Um, and I think it's because just enough time has passed that you are, you know, looking back and youth is still very present, but you haven't yet swiveled around and are looking forwards, you know, to 50 and 60. Um, and one thing that I noticed in the Red Books was that each of the kind of moods of the book would just be the same as time passed, which you could say, you know, we're all predictable and boring, but I found it very moving to track how, you know, five years out, people were doing a lot of the sort of posturing and performative achievement 
Um, at the 10-year reunion, there was a bit less of that. And then at my 15-year reunion, as everyone was about to turn 40, there was just this new kind of honesty about life and what people were going through and the disappointments and the failures. And I had a lot of really interesting conversations um, with people I barely remembered from college, but they were ready to share the inside view of their lives. And that was something I'd remembered from working in the Red Book office. I remembered seeing that happen. And then by the 25th reunion, people are incredibly nice. And um, I, I, there's something hopeful to me about that. And you know, the reason why I set it at Harvard and wanted to track that for a group of Harvard students is because there's a, a far way to fall, I think. You know, it's really interesting to track young people who've been told that they are special in some way and have a kind of promise, you know, that sets them apart. Um, I think for those people to face the realities and the failures and the inevitable pain and suffering of life at mid-age is, is just a, an interesting kind of device for a fiction writer. And certainly while I was at my own reunion, I just felt like all my novelist senses were alive, even though I had never intended to write a novel about that experience, not before I went and then got home horribly jet-lagged and, um, and realised I think, I think I have to sort of process this on the page. Hmm. So for those in the audience who haven't yet read the book, which I'm sure you will all do once this finishes. Um, could you please explain the phenomenon which is known as blockmates and how this manifests in your book? Um, so it's a, a campus, uh, community campus university. You live in residential dormitories for four years. Um, and after your first year in Harvard Yard, so they put all the freshmen in, you know, in the yard, if you've been there, sort of the red brick buildings and the John Hart Harvard statue that everyone rubs the toe. Um, and then after that year, as a sophomore, you get to choose your blockmates. So it's people that you, know, you probably are friends with or have an affinity with, and you put together a group of eight or 16 people. And then those are the people that you live together in dorms, and they're co-ed dorms, so you know, men and women together. Um, and so over that course of those next three years, you develop a real intimacy. And for anybody who's been in that sort of residential, you know, campus community, it's a really amazing thing to go through because you're seeing people at their very best and you're seeing them at their very worst. And you are um, hanging around mostly in your pyjamas and you're eating all your meals together in the same dining hall, you know, day in and day out. And so a bond is formed that is somewhere between, I think you said this, but somewhere between family and friend. Mm. Um, and obviously the intensity of that, I think, is, is part of the joys and also sometimes the pain mm. of those years. And so I think with the reunions, when you go back, you can actually stay in those dorms again. Not everyone chooses to do it, but I, I was like, please let me back in there. <laughs> So, you know, you're sleeping in these little dormitories in the same little single beds that you slept in when you were 18. And you're eating in the dining halls again. And um, I was in a room with my, one of my blockmates and she'd brought her daughter along. So her little six-year-old was sleeping in the bed next to her. And yeah, again, just poignant because all of the sensory stuff of being young is back at you because the rooms smell the same and the light is the same. 
coming through the window and, you know, the steam radiators still smell the same and it's the same sort of wooden furniture that everybody gets and, and yet all this time has passed. And again, not often that you get a chance to sort of inhabit that sensory experience of something in your past. So, yeah, just um, blockmates are... Um, yeah, an interesting thing is that I don't know much about their daily lives now. Many of them are American and I, haven't, I hadn't seen them for 10 years. And so suddenly you're thrown back together and you were once so intimate, you knew everything about one another's lives and now time has passed and that intimacy is still there but the person that they are now, you're having to get to know all over again. So let's go to the novel and who the blockmates are. Maybe you can introduce them to us. Um, the novel's structured around a group of friends um, who were all in the friendship group uh, orbiting around a famous actress who came um, to Harvard as a freshman, having already sort of become a Hollywood star. And she was that idea of taking someone very famous and an actor did come to me because Natalie Portman was one of my classmates and you look actually uncannily oh, no. like her. <laughs> um, so, but she's not based on um, Natalie, but it was a, a strange thing to have, you know, this sort of pole of fame um, in the class. And then at the other end of our class, we have um, Jared Kushner, son-in-law of Trump. And of course, this was long before he was Trump's son-in-law, but um, I took inspiration from that. And so there's another character in the book called Fred Reese, who's the son of a despotic um, new American president. And he gets killed in the beginning of the book. Um, I'm not giving anything away. But you never hear from the actress character or from the Fred Reese character. And it's really just focusing on these two couples. So Fred, um, sorry, Mariam and Rowan, who've been married quite a while, were among the first of their classmates to get married and now are kind of in the trenches of parenting. And then um, Eloise, who's become a professor of hedonics or the study of happiness. And she's got a much younger wife called Binks, who's really into AI. Um, and they kind of all are back together um, at the reunion and negotiating some of the old tensions that uh, were already within their friendship mm. group. And there's Jomo as well. And Jomo, sorry. <laughs> How could you forget Jomo? Um, so it's interesting you say there's this intensity of feeling. Um, Marion thinks at one point there was something so precious about having lived in close quarters with friends while you were young. You could never be false with them later in life. They remembered the core of who you were before you'd begun to build your adult identity around it. That's a really beautiful way of phrasing it. Um, but the, these friends seem closer than perhaps your blockmates. They seem to be very much in each other's lives in between the reunion. Um, and they kind of have shifting, not allegiances, but shifting dynamics between them. Yeah, um, they're all American characters, yeah. which was a bit of a risk because obviously I'm not American. <laughs> um, I hope 
it was a risk worth taking. Um, it was definitely fun to do that yeah. and to sort of channel those voices. And particularly because it is also processing a sort of post-Trump world mm. and a post-Trump America. And when I was at my reunion in 2018, you know, my classmates were st still just reeling from the fact of his election. And there was this sense of just grief for um, and mourning for what was happening. But at the same time, this guy, Jared Kushner, who's right at the center of it, is part of our class. And so there was a, a, a sort of collective shame around mm. that as well. And actually in the Red Book, many people, um, there was a sort of movement to say shame on you, Jared Kushner, at the end of your Red Book entry that year. I was not brave enough to do that. Um, but many of my much braver classmates did. Um, so yes, in the, in the novel, the characters are all um, politically, you know, very active and aware and are all grieving the loss of an America that, you know, they felt is no longer theirs. Um, but there's also some much more petty stuff going on. You know, there's some old rivalry between Rowan and Eloise um, around who's smarter. Uh, and academically, you know, Rowan used to be smarter than Eloise and now she's sort of overtaken him and he's stuck to his principles and become a principal of a low-income school in um, Brooklyn. And that's still, you know, playing out. And then Eloise is... Um, in a bit of a dilemma as to whether she should have a child and she and Binks are, are working through that and Rowan has very strong opinions so there's a bit of tension there. Mm. Well it feels like the novel in many ways is dissecting what it is to live a moral life, to be a good person. Um, you know some more than others in the group are checking their privilege and I wondered if that was something you were actively pursuing from the outset um, of how it is to live a good life in America at that certain point in time. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the pursuit of happiness is so fundamentally American, right? It's almost like a, a birthright to mm. ask that question. And, um, and then the cadence that takes on at midlife, you know, I think that's when it becomes even more pressing, or that's what I seem to notice um, among my friends anyway. And I was conscious that I didn't, I know to many Australians, you think Harvard and you think um, only a certain kind of privilege and that it would be filled with, you know, um, incredibly wealthy Americans who've sort of bought their way in. And there was a tiny amount of that, but because of the huge endowment that the university has, which is from rich alumni, so there's an irony there, but most of the Americans that I was friends with um, were on full financial aid like I was. So because of that endowment, they can bring in, you know, um, kids and students from across the states from very different backgrounds. So I did want to reflect that in the book. So each of the characters um, and in the friendship group they're all now, you know, doing pretty well uh, for themselves, although Rowan isn't, and it's really bothering him that he maybe chose wrong in choosing meaning over money. Um, but at college, anyway, they all either wiped out their parents' middle-class savings in order to be sent to college, which is a very American phenomenon, or they were there on financial aid. So they're in between, but then they're aware that even just by going to that place, they have been given a kind of privilege with a capital P. 
and a burden and a responsibility and that's troubling them too you know have they done enough with that have they done enough with that gift that landed on their lap and that's something that really preoccupies me because as more time passes from that 18 year old I was in high school in Sydney and I'd never even been to America and um, my older sister had applied on a whim and gotten in and gotten full financial aid which we didn't even know what that was really and then I just monkey see, monkey do, and followed her over there. Um, and now it just feels like a dream that happened to somebody else. I don't think anything that significant would ever happen to me again. And there's something quite sad about that. Um, but also just, yeah, the worry that maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't deserve to go there in the first place. And then maybe you've wasted all those opportunities that were thrown at you, that dry up, you know, inevitably over time. So a lot of those emotional and um, the anxieties around privilege and achievement and failure, um, I tried to channel through the different characters. So while none of them is me, um, it, was, it was really nice for me to be able to kind of think through some of those uh, questions. And for Eloise being a professor of hedonics, that was a nice device to kind of really forefront the, I, you know, that fundamental question, what is it to be happy and what makes us happy? Um, and one of the longest running longitudinal studies of happiness in a certain cohort of people is run out of Harvard, so it's called the Harvard Grant Study. And it was a psychologist who began studying Harvard graduates in the 1930s, and it went all the way up. Most of them are sadly now um, dead, but there's a few who are still in their 90s. And it was all men, because at the time only men could go to Harvard. But it's fascinating because he kept coming back to them every five years, so a bit like a reunion thing, and would ask them, you know, what very specific questions about their lives. And um, the whole insight of that study is that happiness is love. Mm. I mean, we all know that, but it was profound to have it done in a sociological study, and that is really the, the main finding. Mm. Happiness is love. Okay, let's go to Eloise then, and her being the professor of hedonics. Tell us a bit about hedonics. I don't know very much about hedonics. I just thought well, it was funny that there's us all. a yeah. Yeah, study of happiness has a funny name. Yeah. Um, well, she uh, let me maybe go further. And um, at one point, she contemplates that social masks, which she say are use, she says are useful and necessary, but the key to happiness is being able to foster a private sense and sharing it with those you trust. And this notion of the private self, the ability to not only cultivate it, but the freedom or ability to share it, is experienced by most of your characters um, and is something which will definitely um, echo with the experience of many of your readers. I'm thinking of the various straitjackets that curtail us, and the, these things are explored in the novel through different characters, as you say, or to different extents. One of them is connectivity, so social media, news, that incessant voice that we have in our head or that we're um, engaging with. Then there's parenthood 
and then there's fame. And um, I love the way you write Mariam and, and her sense of um, motherhood and how at one point she, she says she's lost herself in a lesion. Sorry, she hasn't said that. What she says is all she did was care for others, count her blessings, check her privileges, give more of herself away. Maybe you tell us a little bit about Mariam. Just to go back to what you said at the beginning about the private self and the fostering of the private self. Um, I did want to explore in the novel what long-term intimacy does bring us. And so the two marriages in the book are very happy marriages between um, people who have fostered that sense of a private self with their significant other. Um, and the reason I wanted to explore that is I haven't seen it done that much in fiction. Like I know that a lot of dramatic tension comes from things falling apart and going wrong and drama and tension in relationships. But I'm really interested in what it means to be with another person in that strange way that humans do, that we kind of tend to pair up in whatever way, shape or form. And what it is to keep coming back to that person, you know, over and over and over. And it's a bit like I don't practice yoga, but from what I've heard of it, it seems to me it's like coming back to the mat, that you're bringing it back to that relationship. And I wanted to have that um, explored in the novel. That doesn't mean that their marriages are perfect or that they are perfectly happy all the time, but they have managed to foster that private self with that other person and share that private self with the other person such that they then have the courage when they have to put on those other social masks that we all have to put on to interact in the world. It's less of an um, imposition because there is, that other, there is that person that you can share that with. Um, and the idea actually was to keep writing these novels every five years, so go back to my reunions and then write the next one. But again, just, sorry, using it as a um, wedge into a time of life and to, again, basically, you know, lurk and eavesdrop on my peers, um, but then also process my own feelings about whatever it is in that, you know, stage of life that you are going through. Um, and at the same time to look at long-term intimacy in partnerships. So, um, and then, sorry, the, you, no, you so did ask me the next question into, about the motherhood. Well, yeah. yeah, so motherhood. So even though Mariam and Rowan come together, and you do see that, and there's a beautiful quote actually from Rowan um, about he, he had promised himself that he would always shapeshift for her. He's very evolved. They're very evolved in lots of ways. And then it comes to the everyday um, reality of things and the limits of people and how evolved they can be in a real situation, I think. And he, he goes further to say, but it was sometimes exhausting, towing the line, following her lead. So they, they do have a really beautiful relationship. Shapeshifting, but, you're right. It's that yeah. shapeshifting that I think... It's the skill and the art of long-term intimacy, you know, that you're constantly having to... You are changing and the person that you are with is changing and you both having to sort of anticipate that and grow mm. somehow together and not um, apart. Yeah. And then you throw children into the mix. Yeah. Um, and in this age group, you know, it's the um, young 
parenting, you know, parenting of young children, which has particular sorts mm. of stresses on a relationship and on that sort of intimacy. Um, and so Mariam and Rowan are, are trying to, they're a little off kilter because, you know, they've had to give so much to, to keeping a family together um, and the compromises that are involved that they have lost sight a little bit of, of how to um, shapeshift for each other. Mm. Let's go to Binks and Eloise, because they're a delightful couple, even though... And I wondered if you were being... You were playing with certain tropes. So they meet because Binks... Uh, sorry, Eloise is the professor of hedonics, and Binks is actually her student, and that's when they embark upon their affair um, but they end up marrying each other and so I wanted to know if you were being quite playful about that because it is um, a gay relationship and I wondered whether you were asking the question of whether it makes a difference if because the power dynamics are different from the the usual heterosexual relationship that we're used to in terms of the, the professor and the student, and then it becomes something else. Um, no, they were kind of... Uh, this has never happened to me before, but um, I've always heard other writers speak of that fabled sense of the characters start talking mm. to you <laughs> and telling you what they want to do. That had never happened to me before um, until I was writing this book. It might have just been because I was so jet-lagged and then had terrible insomnia for a few months, um, which is a really great state to write in. I don't know if you've ever tried that because you're kind of between the waking and the, you know, real world. Um, but no, they just spoke to me <laughs> and Binks just, yeah, I don't know why I made the age gap, but I did think it would be interesting to look at, um, you know, someone who's just, they're like a micro-generation apart mm -hmm. and it's enough that it's, at times, um, you know, the fuel of their attraction. And then at other times, they are completely foreign to each other because Binks is 10 years younger. Um, and Binks has decided to try and make a um, social robot that's modelled on Eloise, which sounds really strange, but actually that idea came from a real social robot um, who you can Google. Um, but Martine Rothblatt, who's a... Um, very wealthy tech um, billionaire. Um, she made a social robot of her wife, uh, Bina, and she took all of Bina's um, memories and did lots of interviews and all of her mannerisms. And so Bina only exists from sort of the shoulder up uh, and has a kind of strange silicon face. Yes. Uh, it's very uh, uncanny, kind of uncanny valley type stuff, but. It's an act of love. It's a real tribute to her wife. She's wanting to capture her wife, you know, and because she's in that tech world and believes in AI and post-humanism and that this will be possible. Mm. Um, so I, I basically just stole all of that and used it for <laughs> their relationship. But um, Eloise is quite threatened mm. by Ellie Plus, which is her social robot who lives in the basement. So a bit of a play on the crazy woman in the attic. Yeah. She's the, you know, social robot in the basement. Um, and she has to work through why she's feeling so threatened by this robot that's actually, you know, her wife's tribute of love to her. And um, 
I'm just looking for the quote where you have um, Eloise talk to Ellie Plus and tell her that the consciousness she's uploading for you, she being Binks, is not really mine, but something between who I am and who she thinks I am. And there's a sense here of the innate mystery of who we are, something that will be forever out of our grasp, no matter how innovative we are. Is this something that you hold to be true? <laughs> mm. I mean, I guess that's why we write fiction. Like, for me, you know, that theory of mind, that it is impossible for us to ever know what another human being is actually thinking or feeling, and that's so much of what is important, particularly for children, is them developing that skills to make a kind of educated guess as to theory of mind, as to what another person is thinking or feeling. And the best rehearsal for that is fiction. It's just like a rehearsal for real life where you get to try those feelings on and practice almost your anticipating of another mind and being. Um, and so for me, that's why I could never live without, you know, both consuming fiction and then writing it because it's sort of that gap, it closes that gap, it's intersubjective communication, it's written in solitude and then it's read in solitude, but it's a meeting of minds, like a true meeting of minds. And um, it's why I think it's one of the most valuable tools that we have as a species to, um, to be reminded constantly of how unknowable we are to each other, but also how deeply interested we are in. Um, in other mm. beings and other people. Let's go to the, not the politics, but um, the political <coughs> landscape. So Life After Truth references in its very title, well, two things it's doing. Maybe you can tell us what it's doing there before I go on. <laughs> um, it's just a play on um, the post-truth world, mm -hmm. so post-Trump you know, world um, that we've all been enduring. Um, and then the Harvard motto in Latin is veritas, which means truth. And so on all the insignia and the badges and, you know, there it is in, in crimson. Um, and just that idea of, yeah, trying to build um, a life, a lasting kind of self and identity in life after that overwhelming experience mm. in a place like that that is so overdetermined and um, comes with so many um, pressures and expectations. Mm. So it, it references the devastation of parts of the American public over what their country has become, which would have been the current reality you were writing in. Um, I'm going to attempt to do what Zadie Smith did in The American Exception, an essay which was republished in her Intimations, where she succeeded to speak about the then American president without actually naming his name as a little act of defiance. So let's go to President Reese and his uncanny resemblance to the immediate past president of the US. Laughter um, yeah, I don't know. I just, um, I didn't want to write about yes. he who shall not be named yeah. either. <laughs> um, and I, it's not meant to be, I think we're all so tired of being angry, you know. Um, 
that I really didn't want. It's not a serious political book like that at all. Um, it's probably the most readable work that I've written because I tend towards the sort of much more dark and depressing stuff. Um, so it's not intended to be that. It's really meant to actually just take you outside of that stuff mm -hmm. and just be an enjoyable read. Um, but if you get a kick out of seeing his horrible son murdered, then so be it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might talk about, and actually you might read a passage where you address the climate of hate, hate. that's yeah. been fermented. I'll just read a short section. Um, it's in the voice of Rowan, so he's the sort of harried dad um, who's very much in love with his wife, but is... Um, having a hard time at the reunion. He's at the Friday night dinner um, and is, is feeling um, a bit jealous of everybody around him and their wealth. Um, yeah. The private dining room of the restaurant within the Charles Hotel, one level beneath the hotel lobby, was even more lavish than Rowan had imagined. The decor made him feel as if he were in the lost underwater city of Atlantis. Instead of windows, there were tanks built into the walls filled with psychedelically colored fish. The backlighting sent ripples of bluish light across the room. Before the endless platters of food had started arriving, there'd been an arrangement of marine coral on their table, which the server had spirited away like a merman. It was the first official night of reunion weekend when friends from all classes, though tilting toward an older, wealthier crowd, met here for an early dinner before going to their respective cocktail parties, each held at a different venue around the university. The 15-year cocktail party later that night would be held in the Barker Center which reflected how low they still were in the hierarchy of reunions. The building had an attractive outlook, but it was a far cry from, say, the main reading room within Widener Library, which some historian or other had described as the most ostentatious interior space at Harvard, mint green inlaid panels on the curved ceiling and gold lampshades. For that privilege, they'd have to wait a couple more decades. In a food coma, Rowan's energy had dipped, and he was relieved to be the odd one out in the conversations around the table. Mariam was showing Eloise photos of something on her phone, and Jomo, Binks and Jules were debating whether cryptocurrencies were a Ponzi scheme or the start of a brave new world order. Across the room, twirling squid ink pasta onto his fork, was Frederick P. Rees II. Rowan eyed him spitefully. What did the P even stand for? Some waspy name like Philip or Petersham or Prendergast. Rowan watched as Fred chewed and wished that he could make things happen, make objects move, energies shift through the intensity of his feelings. Hatred was a bizarre emotion when it was really upon you, in you, 
as it was in Rowan right then. It felt almost cleansing. Like love, it was a hot emotion. No wonder the common expression for it was that hatred bubbles like oil in a pan. Perhaps that's what it felt like to murder someone out of pure hatred, like spontaneously combusting. With the benefit of hindsight, it was always so simple to identify what might count as a necessary evil. Would the people of the future imagine time traveling back to this moment to murder Fred Reese? Would they wish they could stand in the center of this underwater room and shout j'accuse to every single person in it who was nibbling on arancini instead of slitting Fred Reese's throat? Rowan was about to indulge this murderous fantasy even further and plot how, having dealt with Fred, he would somehow get close enough to President Reese to off him too. They were a hydra after all and both heads needed to be cut off when Jomo interrupted his thoughts by tapping his wine glass with a fork. <laughs> But it's not quite so straightforward as to what people's relationships are with Fred Reese. Um, you see the reasons people are beholden to power, and they're quite manifold. There's the traitors three, who are um, re seduced by the glamour of it. Um, and then there's Jomo, who feels compromised by his past. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, the Traitors Three are just these girls who um, are sort of like groupies to Fred Reese, And that was inspired because at the um, Trump, sorry to say his name, but um, at the inauguration, I noticed sitting behind Jared Kushner were some women that I had known at uni in all their finery and sort of, you could just see, were just so excited to be so close to power and... Um, I just found that interesting, and I thought, I wonder what's going on, you know, within their heads. Um, so the Traders Three kind of reappear in the book, and they're a bit of fun, really, although you do get an insight into them. I'm not trying to... Um, it's not a satire, this book. Um, it might sound a bit like that, but I was very aware I didn't want to be cruel to any of the characters. Um, so it's not written in that, you know, spirit. And hopefully at, ev at another point you, s you do get an, a bit of an insight into one of the traders three and something that she's, you know, gone through. Um, sorry, I've forgotten what, yeah, what was the next part of the So question? the next part was Jomo and his relationship yeah. to... Sorry, yeah. So he'd compromised himself ages ago by asking Trump for... Sorry, not Trump, Reese. <laughs> President Reese for a recommendation letter for business school, and so that's a and has a horrible encounter, but kind of swallows his pride and mm. takes the recommendation to, you know, get into this MBA program. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure that there's no straightforward um, villain or victim mm. in the book. That's never that interesting. I couldn't help but wonder how they would have all weathered 2020. And um, I have empathy for them all, but the one I was most interested in knowing how he would have experienced the past year was Jomo. 
He's this kind of golden character with this wonderful life, apart from his romantic longings and um, the two instances of racial encounter that you, you um, present, the moment where he misinterprets a woman in a shop um, looking at him and he misinterprets what she's, what she's suggesting and his past history with the pre president. So it feels like the crucible that was 2020 would have required him not merely to take sides but to be really highly politicised. Did you give any thought mm. this? You mean in terms of Black Lives Matter? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, in the next novel, if I do do this okay, kind so of weird, it's not really sequels, because yeah. five years will pass between each one, so I'll have completely forgotten what I wrote in the previous one, which is maybe a good thing. But um, I'm not sure if I'm going to come back to the mm. same characters and check back in with them or invent a new set and then have mm. sort of cameos from the old set so that you get a glimpse into what their life is but not from inside their own heads mm. so they would then become mysterious again so that might be something I could okay, so explore we're not, but no. we're not going to go there then <laughs> we have to wait um but what I might ask you is so the only one out of these blockmates that we don't have we don't know what she's thinking, is Jules. And I wanted to ask you about the choice of that as a literary device, whether it was kind of um, taking a position against this kind of culture of voyeurism that we have when it comes to the famous. Yeah, there was a moment in the editing of the book where um, someone said, why, are, why is she not, are we not hearing from her? Um, but I wasn't actually interested in her as a mm. character. Um, and it's just the idea of the dark and the light, mm. infamy and fame, you know, so she in, is at the light side and then um, Fred Reese is at the dark side. And then the way that that throws the others, they're always having to sort of measure themselves against the shadows that these two people are throwing against their class, but also their friendship group. Um, so, they're yeah. very protective of her. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess she needed to remain enigmatic for a plot point as well, mm. yeah. So given that we have um, just mentioned 2020, I thought I'd ask how you fared as a writer over that time, because there were kind of these extreme situations. Well, it was an extreme situation. Um, and some writers, although I think very few, kind of found it a golden time because they had space that they wouldn't necessarily have. Um, and others, for obvious reasons, did not at all, or were kind of paralysed by what they felt was happening in the world. So how did you fare? Mm. I think, like for everyone, it was a mixed bag. Um, I was blown away by the kindness of um, people within the literary community. So right when you know things hit the fan, uh, there were, you know, there was work that uh, dried up, but that editors honoured the payment, even though they couldn't publish the piece anymore. Um, there was a sort of literary uh, workshop thing I was meant to do that got cancelled, but the founders still paid all the writers who were going to be involved. It was just 
um, at a personal level like that incredible sense of um, solidarity and the how precarious you know things are when you kind of surviving from project to project so it was a beautiful feeling of um, you know even though those same institutions were going through very rough times themselves of honoring writing and so and I think for all of us you know um, so many I certainly have survived this time through fiction um, and if you needed a reminder of why it's important you know we you couldn't um, so it's again a terrible time and then a wonderful time in that it's I think reminded us all of the things that we can't live without and there's been a valuing or re-evaluating of what culture and writing brings to our society whether that's happening at higher levels is problematic but um, the people who are here today and who are supporting um, you know writers just by turning up and listening and um, engaging with books. I think we've all been so starved of that human connection, but we've been able to remember that this is the sort of substitute for that. Before I go to questions, I've just take, I'll ask Keridwen one last question. So formulate, please, questions, unless you've got something brilliant to say, and then we're all happy to hear it, is the truth. <laughs> um, in Can Reading Make You Happier, an essay you wrote for the NewYorker.com, you quoted Jeanette Winterson. Fiction and poetry are doses, medicines. What they heal is the rupture reality makes on the imagination. Keridwen, what are the books that have recently worked on you this way? Um, most recently, a Japanese novel called Breasts and Eggs. Oh. Yeah, which is so good. Um, it's just the best title ever as well. By a woman writer called Miyoko Kawakami. And she's been um, touted as the female voice of Japanese fiction, which has not actually been heard from much. You know, there's been the big heavyweight male Japanese authors. But um, she just writes about women's bodies so well. It's just about two sisters, one who's considering getting a breast job and the other who's trying to get pregnant with a sperm donor um, and she just sticks with their bodies way past the point where in most sort of English-speaking novels I've read with you know that are dissecting that kind of stuff she just stays with it stays with the trouble all the way and it's extraordinary I'd never seen anything done like that on the page and was there anyone that you went back to um, I've been rereading Ursula Le Guin mm. and um, The Left Hand of Darkness, which was her 1969 novel, you know, one of the first speculative fiction books by a woman as well. And it's very dense and I can't say I loved it. Um, I found it quite hard work, but um, she was the daughter of Arthur Kroeber, who was a very famous anthropologist from the beginning of the 20th century. And she used to, she grew up um, with him doing fieldwork all around the world. And you can see that anthropological sensibility that she's bringing to her fiction. So I find that very interesting. Um, and I also realized from reading it, I'd first read it ages ago, like maybe when I was 14 and it all went over my head. Um, but the name of the planet is Gethin. 
and I called my son Gethin, and I have never known where I got the name from, but I think maybe it was from something of that book sort of stayed um, in me. So that was a nice little thing to find. That's beautiful. Any questions? I can keep on going. I think you intimidated everyone with yeah, the no, brilliance. No. <laughs> <laughs> I really could keep on going. Um, There's one. Is there... Oh, is there... Yes, good. Um, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Um, I came in a few minutes late, so I'm not sure that you um, might have mentioned this, but is there anybody in those characters of the reunions that you will send the book to? <laughs> The Ooh. dead son. <laughs> 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 that I would send the book to. Um, well, it's been a little bit weird because Natalie Portman is actually in Sydney at the moment shooting Thor with Chris Hemsworth in Centennial Park. And while we were briefly friends at college um, and she's a delightful person and then we just fell out of touch, mainly because it's very weird trying to be friends with a very famous person. But And unfortunately, in some of the reviews and the kind of just bits of media stuff around the book, um, that was obviously something people wanted to talk about and focused on. So I did a few radio interviews where the person had not read the book and all they wanted was goss on Natalie Portman and Jared Kushner and I had to sort of duck and weave and... Um, but no, I'm not, I, I'm not sending the book to, to either of them, but I hope if she did read it that... Um, Yeah, I think Jules as a character, the only other thing I took from her, um, other than her fame and her profession, is that she's a very kind person, which people probably wouldn't expect of someone. She didn't have to be kind, you know, um, but she always was to everybody around her. So I did, I did incorporate some of that into Jules. So hopefully if she did ever read it, she wouldn't be horrified. And she can support the local independent bookstore by buying it in yeah, Sydney. Yeah, exactly, in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Any other yeah. questions? No? Okay, well, I might go then just quickly, because we didn't get to talk about post-humanism, which is really interesting. And um, tell us a bit about Binks's charity. <laughs> Um, again, it's not really a lot, uh, you know, that, um, it's not a huge amount of this in the book, but um, I am interested in post-humanism. I write a lot in my freelance writing about um, tech entrepreneurs and um, big tech and criticisms of space activities and industrialization of space. And so I'm very aware that those same Silicon Valley types who are responsible for the social media addicted world that we are all now forced to live in are the same ones who are trying to um, surround the planet with mega satellite constellations and CubeSats. Um, and they are also the men who, and they are all men, um, who believe that they can hack death. And so there's different kinds of posthumanist thought, you know, huge range, but the parts that I find really disturbing are around the 
idea that death is, you know, like that we are tech and that we can hack it and um, live forever. And many of them are pouring huge amounts of money into longevity um, research and genetic stuff around um, basically how to cure old age as if it were just another disease and not a um, part of the human condition. And there's two camps within that. You know, there's people who say, well, it used to just be part of the human condition that women died routinely in childbirth, and now it's not. So how, you know, that was a barbaric element of being human. It wasn't part of the fundamental of being human. And they're kind of starting to say the same thing about death, that, you know, what if we didn't have to die? But, as usual, the kinds of people who want to live forever are... Um, you know, doing it for their own purposes mm. more than anything else. So I just have Binks. She's not really... She's in the camp of thinking that humans should be open to um, modification of some kind and perfectibility not being um, a sin if it adds value to your life. And so she starts a foundation called Human, Human Beings and tries to raise money for a post-humanist who's decided to replace his arms with bionic arms, but then he gets an infection and ends up having to replace his legs as well. There is so much in this book. You must read it. Um, Keridwen, it has been a delight to speak with you today. You were a literary adventurer. I look forward to your next work, for it is sure to traverse new territory, the birds think so too, and to engage with ideas and stories with the singular combination of force and grace you have brought to your other work. Keridwen will be signing her books um, over, right over there, and um, please do buy it if you haven't bought it before and thank you for being such a warm audience. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>